Every every week we come to hear the good news of the gospel, which is that we can't save ourselves, but God and his son Jesus has done everything needed and required to save us. He is sufficient for all things, for our life and godliness in Christ. And by his Holy Spirit, we are united to him, not just to be forgiven, but to receive all the benefits, all the benefits and all the riches and all the mercies of, of how God sees his son as how he sees us. So may the Lord convict us in his word. May he do surgery on our souls, but as a gracious physician whose goal is always and forever to restore us and to make us useful and beautiful and glorious in the city of holy faith that he has called us to. This last week, I dropped off my kiddos with my parents. That's why I look so relaxed. That's why I'm wearing my Vans, all right? These are dress shoes if you're a skater. Dropped off my kiddos, and they're going to take them to Flagstaff. They do a little trip every year. It's going to be social distance Flagstaff, but whatever. So I was there talking to my dad, and he said, hey, do me a favor. And I usually know what that means. Uh, He said, I'd love for you to give your grandparents a call. My grandparents are in their mid-90s. They're in a care facility in Buffalo, New York, and they're both actually doing great and still with it and just wonderful, wonderful people. He said, could you give them a call? It's their wedding anniversary today. I said, okay, dad, I'll do that. No problem. So later on that afternoon, I called him and my grandpa answered the phone. And, you know, I hear all these stories, uh, you know, about my grandpa. And, and it's interesting. He's just, he's this old saint. He's loved and walked with Jesus all these years. And he just has a, a softness to him. And he answers the phone and in, in his soft and still strong voice, hello, who is this? It's your grandson, Greg. And a happy anniversary. I said, how many years have you guys been married, Grandpa? 72 years. And he goes, 72 years and I still love that woman. And I was like, Jesus, help. Help me to be like that. I mean, that, that's my hero, right? Those are the heroes. Not how much money and success and titles and, you know, whatever. But, man, I was just so blessed to, to hear that. And I got to thinking, of course, about life and marriage and the ups and the downs and the good and the bad, and maybe I could even put it in these terms, the just and the unjust. I mean, if you're married, let's be honest, there's certain things that your spouse does or has done. It's not just the oops or that bugs me. It starts to feel like you don't really respect me. And here they are after 72 years. How? And I know because I've been able to watch them for the last 38 years that they, they both lead, they both lead toward each other and toward God with, with love and with generosity. Not dividing, not making the other person other, but moving toward. Even when you feel like, actually, you were wrong, and I'm right. I mean, look at my list of all the reasons I'm right. Isn't it obvious, babe? I don't think my grandpa ever said babe, but, but choosing... To not self-justify, but instead to, to die, to move toward, to love. This issue of justice is all over Nehemiah chapter 5. There is a great injustice that has befallen the people of God. Nehemiah is the leader of those people, and he is called, and he is eager to bring the good justice of God to bear on that community. I think we can all acknowledge that in our day and age, we have problems of justice as well. 
Certain things in the world that we see or things in our city that we see or perhaps our state or our country that we see and our heart cries out and we goes, it should not be that way. It will not be that way in heaven when all things are made new. When we're back to the garden, when sin is finally and forever put to death permanently in our mortal bodies and we're raised up and every tear is wiped from our eye. Pick your issue. There are quite a few of them to choose from nowadays. You know, I got to thinking about this this morning, about in, in New Mexico, I was just looking through some statistics about our foster care system and just the issue with fatherlessness we have. That's oftentimes, by the way, y'all know this, the elephant in the room on justice issue X, Y, or Z that you're really fired up about. Fatherlessness is often the elephant in the room. And what a weird day and age we live in now where young men, and I relate to this myself, you know, what's, there's no rite of passage. It used to be, you know, I don't know, it used to be like girlfriends and all that. Even that's easy now. You just have an app and swipe right. How will we learn to be men of justice who fight for the weak and the oppressed and the downtrodden and women as well? The other problem I have isn't the issue outside of me, but the heart inside of me. See if you relate. Because I do want to do good. I'm like Paul in Romans 7. I want to do good things, but then I often end up not doing them. Or I have reasons why I shouldn't do them. Or, you know, I'd like to do, do good, but kind of want to do good to those who deserve it. Because I've worked hard. So I want to do justice, but it, it can tend very easily to become conditional. I observe and if I, you know, if I, if I tend to perceive that maybe you could, you could work a little bit harder on that. I find myself frequently withholding the, the generous justice that God has so plentifully provided for me. This is what Nehemiah is addressing. It's timely that we remember that injustice grieves the heart of God wherever it is found. And it is found outside of us in a sinful world in many ways and inside of us. So that we cannot be those who pass the buck and are not required to take responsibility for our own transgressions. If you didn't want to do that, don't come to church because we already did confession and assurance. We've already done it. We've already prayed the Lord's Prayer. I love that in the midst of this, Nehemiah chooses to step up. He has so many options as a leader. He steps up. And I believe in his stepping up, he, he gives us something that we can really sink our teeth into from Nehemiah 5. And here's what I want to do here. As we unpack Nehemiah 5 and the issue at hand, I want us to really try and make it personal. So whatever that thing is right now, that as you look out at the world and read the news and feel the feelings, whatever that thing that you go, oh, that's not right. Maybe that's the thing that through Nehemiah 5, God is, God is asking you to, to hear to lead, to own that leadership. I really think the point of, of Nehemiah 5, that chapter, is, is that as we lead in the love of God in the city, we would respond to the painful injustice we see with the gener generous justice that God has given. And guess what? We're not all going to be doing the same thing, and that's good. we got a whole church full of people, and we need to be where God has us. We need to bloom where the Lord has planted us, because there's a lot of work to be done. In Santa Fe. 
Our leadership is that we would respond to the painful injustice around us with the generous justice of God. To put it another way, and this is the main point, that because of what Christ has done, we would alleviate the suffering in our world through our costly personal sacrifice. That's what we learn from Nehemiah 5. When injustice springs up its ugly head, which it often does, Nehemiah, as a leader, chooses to take the low place and do the hard thing and alleviate the suffering of his people through costly personal sacrifice. So let's jump into the text here. And as we do, I always like to go back a little bit. Nehemiah, is a, it's a narrative book. You know that if you've been with us since chapter 1. It's a story. And so let's remember what's happening in the story. Nehemiah 1, Nehemiah hears from some folks that things are not well in Jerusalem. The walls are in disrepair. It should not be. This is God's holy city. It's Zion. And his friends tell him that there is trouble and shame among the people of God. This breaks his heart. And so he spends a good long four months We get those two dates, beginning of chapter one, chapter two, four months grieving, praying, fasting, waiting, before finally, by an act of faith, he puts his own life on the line, and he goes to the king of kings and the lord of lords, in human speaking terms, Artaxerxes I, the king of Persia, which at the time in the ancient Near East was, you know, maybe one of the greatest empires the world has ever seen. And even though he is the cupbearer of the king, deeply and intimately connected, he takes a risk in an act of faith and says, I need to go back to Jerusalem. I need to be with my people. I need to help rebuild this wall. It is not just that God's people are unprotected. So he shows up. And immediately, believe it or not, in leadership, there's opposition, as there always is. You've all been there. So at night, he goes out on his donkey, he does a little trip around the wall, he identifies where the needs are, and then he steps up to remind God's people that this is God's plan, purpose, and call, and we can do it, even though the odds seem impossible. Let's build. Chapter 4, then, that we studied last week is really a, a, a tale of the opposition that comes from without outside the community of God. It's the enemies of God. We looked at this character last week, Sambalot. Not a good dude. You know, there's jealousy there. There's anger. There's frustration. There's no way you guys can do this. He mocks the Jews and he mocks their God. But in chapter 5, we move into a new threat. And as we do, remember that that chapter 3 is there to remind us that they do actually build the wall. God is faithful. He keeps his promises. So chapter 3 is sort of anachronistic. It's out of chronological order. It's there to show us, before we get to all the minutia and detail and conflict resolution, that actually God did do what he said he was going to do, and they built the wall. Chapter 4, enemies without. Chapter 5, now the threat is within. And it would be so easy to be like, well, it's obvious who the bad guy is here. It's the nobles. Or it's Nehemiah for his lack of leadership skills. Or it's the people for not working hard enough. But Come on, you guys. Life is way more complicated than that. Community, family, church is way messier than that. Which is why the only hope we have for justice, for one another, and in Christ, is the gospel. 
Chapter 5, we hear that now, that first word at the beginning of chapter 1, or uh, verse 1, chapter 5, that we just read now, now we've dealt with the external opposition, and here's what's going on inside the community. The Jews cry out. The Jews cry out. We can't do it anymore. This is unjust. Now, what's the problem? I just want to lay it out because, again, it's multifaceted and it's complicated. Like all problems within an eternal family structure and community unit are. They're always messy. And I think we just need to be really on guard, right? When we have stuff that we're working on with each other, justice issues that we're working out as a body, that especially for those in leadership, we can't just say, well, you know, so-and-so didn't do it right. I'm prone to do that. No, it's complicated. It's messy. So here's what's happening. Here's the problem of injustice in Nehemiah chapter 5. These folks have been called to build a wall, which means diverting manpower in an agrarian society uh, from farming to wall building. So many of the farms have been neglected. Therefore, they're not yielding the crop they normally would. But on top of that, we're told that there's a famine. I don't know about you, but I, you know, I live and move and have my being by a drip system. So I don't really know a whole lot about rain. I just kind of turn the thing on and there's the water, which is a miracle. But for most of human history, if we all wanted to eat, we really needed it to rain. And not just rain, but rain rightly, rain at the right time and rain in the right places. So not only has there been a diversion of labor, but now a famine has caused a serious issue with the provision of crops and specifically grain in the community. This is a really serious issue that unfortunately the nobles, and here's the injustice, diverting the men power is not unjust and the famine you know, is unfortunate, but it's not the justice issue. The injustice is that the nobles have decided to capitalize on this in ways that would be considered no less than than predatory. There's a hunger in this famine. Children are having to to work, to be sold into slavery. And the real problem here is that the nobles and the leaders of the land have basically put money and gain and interest over the collective needs of the body, even as the body is working as hard as it can to build the wall. I know I have a lot of issues you know, justice issues, some of them are not very serious. But this one is serious. It's affecting the entire community, families, and it's really causing folks to question, why did I come back here? Is God going to be faithful? At the time, the king, the Persian king, again, Artaxerxes, exercised a tax on all the fields of all the people in his huge, massive territory. The tax wasn't on what you produced, right? So if you get 10 apples, give me one. The tax was levied before the harvest season on what was expected from that field to produce. As a result of the famine, the fields had not produced. And so not only were folks having to mortgage their homes to pay for the tax, but they were still hungry and in need of grain. And they needed to borrow from the nobles to get that grain. And in borrowing, the nobles charged them interest. Now look, Deuteronomy 24 clears this up. It's not wrong. Interest is not inherently bad. Okay, I know some of you may, may have thought that it is, but there's actually, biblically, there's, there's some, some ways to understand this here. Predatory usury, bad. But not all interest is bad. And it's certainly not bad, according to Deuteronomy, to 
you know, ask someone who's borrowing you money to put something up in collateral. That's right there in the Old Testament. That's not the problem. The problem is we're dealing with a hurricane has gone through the community and the nobles are out there selling bottles of water for 20 bucks a pop. That's what's happening in this situation. It wasn't that the people weren't working hard enough. It was that the nobles are taking advantage of a strained situation for their benefit at the expense of the need and the unity and cohesion of the very community that God has called. And I just want us to see how quickly this can all creep in. It didn't happen right away. It's always, injustice is so frequently death by a thousand cuts when it's internal. You see, when it's external, it's easy, right? We, we have Nehemiah 4. There's the clear enemies of God. They even have weird names. And then there's the people of God. It's black and white. It's clear. But man, when there's internal conflict, so often it, it, it happens slowly. It creeps in. And then eventually it gets to a point where, man, this is way worse than we ever thought it could be. For the people of God, uh, You can imagine them just as those who wandered in the desert with Moses saying, man, why did we come back to Jerusalem? Why did we come back to this dusty outpost on the very outskirts of the Persian Empire? Why did we leave Babylon where at least, you know, the enemies were clear and the rules were set in stone and here we are in our own homeland trying to do the right thing and we can't eat? This would have been a deeply serious injustice. They knew they were being exploited. You can imagine the Israelites just like they were in the wilderness saying, man, we should have never left Egypt. Maybe the meat pots of Egypt would have been better than this. This, this is why the outcry. And the outcry is is emphasized in this little verse I love uh, where we're told that it's not just the people, but their wives. It's the second time that Nehemiah has made use of both the men and the women. The first is in chapter three when we hear about the daughters who are, and some of you have daughters that are strong out there. They're building the wall. Well, now we're told it's the men and the women. It's everybody. It's the whole family unit that's been compromised. And they say, we can't do this anymore. We came back to build a new Jerusalem. Zerubbabel rebuilt the temple. Ezra reinstated the priestly system. Nehemiah's working on the wall. This was supposed to be a redeemed place, a place of renewal, kind of like Eden, where we all had and we all worked and we all loved and we all gave, and now it's not. Now injustice is at our doorstep. The height of the outcry comes. It's a threefold, those who said, those who said, those who said, escalating till we finally hear that even the children are now being sold into slavery. And let me just be very clear here. Uh, This isn't, uh, first of all, it's obviously not racially motivated because everyone in this community is an ethnic Jew. And secondly, it's not chattel slavery in in the sense of our own you know, civil past. This is indentured servitude, but it's still serious. The point is that mom and dad can't pay their debts on the farm. Mom and dad can't pay the debts on the farm. And so the kids have to go to work. I mean, this isn't anything incredibly insidious. This isn't like sexual slavery or anything like that when you hear about the daughters. The point is mom and dad can't pay the bills. And so the kids have to go and help pay off the bills because the very nobles who are, who are there to keep the city healthy and holy, are exploiting the famine and the building of the wall. You see how horrible that is? That's gnarly. That's bad leadership. And that's in all of us, 
in some ways. I see it in myself. God help me. The thing that that Nehemiah wants us to see here is that, first of all, it's functionally impossible for these folks to recover. Did you catch that little verse where it says there in verse 5, but it is not in our power to help it. So if you want to use this word, it's fine, but essentially there's something systemic going on here. They can't break out of this cycle. Those who are in debt have no power to relieve themselves of the downward spiral that they're in. And so we can't say, nor should we say, work harder, pull yourself up by the bootstraps, do more. Lord, help us to not be that naive with the people we meet who are in the midst of justice issues in our own city. The fact is the stack is, the deck is deeply stacked against these folks. The second thing that we we see Nehemiah do here is that he listens to their outcry. They don't remain silent and neither does he. And I just want to encourage us as, as God's people, man, whether it's here in the church or outside in the city, when we see injustice, it is our responsibility to not be silent. Well, this all leads to Nehemiah's rebuke. And I love his rebuke (laughs) because it is firm, it is clear, it is bold, and that is this needs to stop. This is not right. Although he is in a position of wealth and power himself, he hears and listens to the outcry of the people, and he swiftly says this needs to stop. We're told in... uh, In this verse, verse 6, Nehemiah says, I was very angry. It's really interesting that he uses that sort of emotional word to to speak about his feelings, having having er, heard the outcry of the people. Nehemiah is deeply angry. There's no excuses. Now, why are there no excuses? Well, Nehemiah, you have to remember, this is, you know, we're dealing with about 500 years before Christ is born. At this point, most of of the prophet, uh, the writings of the prophets have been completed. We still haven't quite gotten to like Malachi, but pretty much all of what we have in our Bibles as the major and minor prophets, those last, you know, 16 books of the Old Testament are done. So Nehemiah would have been very familiar with with this idea. One scholar refers to it as the, the quartet of the vulnerable. God's heart is is for the oppressed. And always in the prophets, God says, as he's bringing Israel through these cycles of judgment and restoration, judgment for their sin, being restored in grace, time and time again, he says, judgment is coming upon you because you have oppressed the vulnerable. You have silenced the voiceless. You have stepped on the downtrodden. Now, who are the quartet of the vulnerable? And again, let's think about our own city here, folks. Because this has nothing to do with laws and policies and everything else. As important as those things are. This has to do with the heart of God to bring heaven to earth. To bring his kingdom to bear. Which he will do forever and finally when Jesus returns again. Until he does, we are meant to be a people that by grace, living out a life of gratitude, that is our calling. We're all missionaries. Every single one of you here is a missionary to bring the realities of the kingdom of God and the justice of God and the heart of God to bear as you are loved by God, loving God, and loving your neighbor. So here it is, the quartet of the vulnerable, the widow, the orphan, 
the immigrant, and the poor. The widow, the orphan, the immigrant, and the poor, or alien and stranger would be other words for immigrant there. The point is this, says this scholar, if you're not concerned, and the prophets of the Old Testament make this very clear, if you're not concerned with these people, with this quartet of the vulnerable, then the Old Testament prophets seem to indicate that something in your heart is not right between you and God. Not that you're not, you know, saved. But folks, we're not just here to like pray the prayer and get fire insurance. There's way too much on the line here. This isn't a country club, as I'm fond of saying, nor is it a Facebook group where we all just get together on the one thing we like and then, you know, dance around in the ball pit of confirmation bias. We're a messy, broken family, redeemed and saved by Jesus, put on this earth for a purpose, and that is to be concerned about what God's heart burns for. So this, this guy says it's not just an act of disobedience, a sin, an instance of breaking the law. Oops, I said a bad word, whatever that means. It means something is deeply off in the way that you are relating to the Jesus you say you believe in and say you know and knows you. Ouch, man, when I read this this week, I was like, I don't like that. I almost threw this book across the room. Conviction. Conviction. But the point here isn't to like, oh, I'm glad you came to church. Beat you up now. You know, shame on you. You're not being a good enough person. That is the law. That is self-righteousness. No. The point is simply this, that man, if we are owned by the love of God, if he has saved us from death and brought us to life, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Sovereignly, holy, perfectly. There was, there was nothing that, you know, here, Lord, let me bring my 10%. I'll bring 10, you bring 90, and we're good, right? There's no deal with God. There's no conditional love here. It's unconditional. We deserve nothing in our injustice, and he gave everything in his son, who is both perfectly just and the justifier of us, the unjust. So what? We might become the righteousness of God. If we are truly known by Jesus, if we have truly seen how far he went, to save a wretch like me, your favorite song. If you really believe that, then we can't not care about what God cares about. And God cares about the widow and the orphan and the immigrant and the poor. So Nehemiah's rebuke is swift. And there's one thing I just want you to notice about it. The first part of that thing is that Nehemiah knows that we need to get this community healthy. We need to call this thing out. We need to have a big assembly. We need to call it what it is and reconcile because if the body, Israel, if she is not healthy, the community of Israel, if her body is not healthy, she can't do what God's called her to do in the world. And the second thing is I want you to see that Nehemiah mentions himself. That's why I said keep track of the I, we, us, our stuff. Nehemiah mentions himself. Do you see how easy it would have been for Nehemiah to go, oh, I'm going to step back here. Let's create a triangle here. It's the outcry of the people and it's the nobles. Not me. I'm not the one. I'm not the man. Instead, Nehemiah publicly says, 
I'm in this too. I've sinned too. I'm the governor of this place too. This has happened under my watch. And I want you to know just how beautiful it is that he doesn't fall back. Oh, man, he doesn't fall back on his rights. He doesn't lawyer up, which is what I so often do in my heart. I can't afford a real lawyer, but in my heart, I lawyer up. And I start to, I get a whole legal Talmud, you know, 7,000 volumes of reasons why I'm justified in a situation. We all do it because we're weak, broken, needy human beings. Nehemiah doesn't fall back on his privilege. He doesn't claim his rights. He doesn't lawyer up. He also, by the way, have you read a few history books? I think you have. I see smart people. I see smart people. All right. I know you've read a few books. And so I know you know that in the entire history of humankind, having been organized in little clusters referred to as societies, those in power, ergo the nobles, only really have one desire in life, and that is what? To stay in power. How easy would it have been for Nehemiah? I mean, these people are already poor. They're already hungry. Hello, North Korea. It's really easy to take advantage when people are already poor and they're already hungry. He could have ruled with an iron fist. He could have gotten together with those nobles and said, look at these, you know, look at these folks. I mean, we've all got private security detail. I run the army. Enough of this. Let's have a secret meeting, create some secret rules based on our super secret understanding of God's law. Sure, we can whip something up out of Leviticus, no doubt. He doesn't do that. He doesn't flex his power. He becomes weak. He becomes needy. He becomes vulnerable. For the sake of those who are vulnerable as a result of the injustice, Nehemiah becomes vulnerable. Do you realize what a risk he's taking? This is, this, is the, you know, this is the stew you cook for a potential coup right here. He owns his stuff. He changes himself. He sacrifices his own resources and his own reputation for those who are in need. And this is... This is the, the beauty of, of Nehemiah leading with humility and generosity. Sort of the two-punch combo of his leadership. The humility of owning his own transgressions. Not, not to appease the people, but for God's glory. Because if the community of Israel, if the community of the church, folks, if we're not healthy, we're telling a lie about who God is to the world to our friends who aren't Christians. And man, that is where the devil plays. Again, it's really easy to see, oh, my enemies over there that look different and act different and don't believe what I believe. Black and white. Where the devil loves to play is here to divide and destroy us so that the church, the people of God, the community of God tell a true, a false story to the world. That's why it's so important for us to work on these things together. Nehemiah's humility is incredible. Tim Keller put it this way this week. I, I really appreciated this. Because in his rebuke, as humble as it is, there's warnings and consequences as well. Tim Keller said, you know, we love to talk about being poor in spirit. Poor in spirit means I know how much I need Jesus to save me. I can't do it on my own doesn't mean you walk around moping all the time. You walk around victorious because your victory is outside of you. 
It's an alien righteousness which comes to you and is given to you for free by faith. But you're poor in spirit because you know your need. The longer you walk with God as a Christian, right? When you first got saved, it was like, okay, cool. I'll stop hooking up with girls and getting drunk. I can handle that. You know, buy a couple Christian CDs. We're good to go. But now you've been walking with God for 20, 30, 40, 50 years. And it's like, whoa, man, that stuff's still deep. That stuff's still deep. So there's these blessings and these curses. Nehemiah says, if you don't get this right, I'm going to shake you out. Turn you upside down and shake your robe till all the money comes back out. Judgment. And Keller put it this way. He said, you know, so often I only find myself wanting to help the deserving poor. I only want to help the deserving poor. If Jesus did that, we'd all be in huge trouble. If Jesus had only come to help the deserving poor, we'd all be in huge trouble. Called separation from God. And then Keller goes on to say, we love to talk about being poor in the spirit. Our problem is that we all want to be middle class in spirit. We love to talk about being poor in spirit, but we all want to be middle class in spirit. Because as Luther said, we are hopelessly meritorious. We want to make everything based on a transaction. It's conditional, and that's not the gospel. And so Nehemiah 5 leads us ultimately to the most generous justice that exists in the universe. And that is that God so loved the world, he sent his only son. You know, not to condemn the world. He sent his only son to die for you and for me. Apart from anything we could bring, by faith alone. Nehemiah is humble and he's generous. He is a good leader, as fallible and as imperfect as he is. He does the right thing in this situation. And God honors that, but but really it points us to the need for a savior. Not just a string of really great leaders who are nothing but human beings. And nothing has ever been more generous and God the Father sending God the Son to keep his promises to Nehemiah and to us. Nehemiah prays in, chapter, in verse 19, God, would you remember me for my good? Jesus is our promise that God remembers us for our good. You see, to do the justice of God requires that we are justified on God's terms. And I want you to get this. Forgiveness, right? Forgiveness is great. But if you're standing before Artaxerxes, forgiveness looks like this. Okay, I could kill you or do whatever I want, but I've forgiven you, you may go. Forgiveness is you may go, the debt is paid. And that's great. But our being justified in Christ, the very, the very foundation of our ability to, to respond and do justice in the world is so much more than that. Not just you may go, your debt is paid, but you may come. You are my children. You have a new standing, a new status, a new name. I've not only removed your debts, I've now clothed you in my righteousness. Because of the finished work of my son, I have called you my sons and daughters. So we get to 1 John 3, 1. I just love that verse. Behold what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called the children of God, and that is what we are. This world needs help. We need help. We need the one who is both just and justifier, who knew no sin but became sin for us 
to come and help us that we might do his justice in the world. And the great promise of God for us in Jesus is as we are sent out into Santa Fe in our neighborhoods to do that, God will never cease to do it for us. Not for 72 years, as long as that is. But the promise of Jesus Christ, the bridegroom to his bride, is I will never leave you, I will never forsake you. You are mine, you are justified. Now go do my justice in the world forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Nehemiah chapter 5. What an incredible story. And thank you for Nehemiah's leadership. Lord, I'm convicted by that, deeply convicted. More convicted probably than I even know. My tendency is to do all the other stuff. To protect myself, to circle up the nobles, to justify myself. Not to take the low place, not to die. To be more about policy and procedure as opposed to the burning heart of God for the poor and the widow and the orphan and the immigrant. So Father, would you, would you just remind us this morning that because of you, Jesus Christ, Son of God, we have no guilt in any of these things. Indeed, you have done it all so that we can stand in victory. We know we're not super worthy, but you've made us worthy, Christ, by what you've done. Completely and forever, it is finished. So help us, Lord, to be those who go. If these things are true, oh, there's such wonderful things about your grace. If they are true, would you send us out now to restore and repair and remember, to respond to the painful injustice we see with the generous justice of Jesus. And we pray in Christ's name, amen.